0: Hello, friends and listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Aftermath. Please make sure to rate us everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, which just recently launched the ability to rate podcasts. We have more listeners on Spotify than anywhere else, so we'd especially appreciate it if you could drop us a rating. And if you haven't already, connect with us on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Facebook at Fire Pit Creative Group, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. We hope you enjoy the latest episode of Aftermath. Firefit Creative Group presents Aftermath, episode 25. Everybody knows this is nowhere. past several hours, Meryl Ganaya and Donna Chang had sat in relative silence. Machines in the laboratory hummed and blinked as usual, but the physician and engineer spoke little to each other. Their relationship was strained since Ganaya, Devenu, and General Castro's team discovered Donna tampering with, or upgrading, the technology, as she put it. Meryl was concerned about her colleague, concerned about her mental fitness, and what it meant for their mission. I'm sorry. Meryl broke the awkward silence. I know it's no consolation, but... Dr. Fox really is an outstanding psychotherapist. Cheng bristled. She turned slowly, her otherwise full features drawn back in a dour expression. I don't see how the flawed instructions of the council are any of your business, doctor. Kanaya shifted from the computer she used to monitor the modules. None of my business? Donna... Whatever's going on, the secrets you're keeping, the modifications you're making to the hardware, I want to help you if I can. Chang put a knuckle to her lips. While General Castro, Major McGillicuddy, and Dr. Bath lay in the coffins, Chang and Ganaya remained in the lab, operating the hybrid blend of old and new technology and service of the explorers. But Chang did not want to serve the others. At the very least, she wanted to join them. Her recent discovery about her father's role in developing the green stream technology and his schematics for altering its efficiency made this mission personal. With all due respect, Meryl, I didn't ask for your help. And as for Dr. Fox's qualifications, frankly, the man is a lunatic. Charles's methods may be unusual, Donna, but he's well qualified, I assure you. He wants to hypnotize me. Meryl walked from her workstation to Donna's cautious not to violate the other woman's personal space. It's a valid methodology, especially considering what's happened to you since your experience in the Green Stream. Chang glanced up, her face blank, calm. What happened to me, Ganah? hmm? Meryl leaned to one side. You've admitted it. Since you went to Liberty Island, you've been different. The experience changed you. You're able to complete calculations you couldn't before. You've re-engineered this tech. I've made it more efficient, Cheng corrected her. Fine, Donna, fine. You're able to do things you couldn't before. But what's more important? You're withdrawn. Distant. Antisocial. So you're with Devenu on this? The engineer asked, raising a dark eyebrow. I'm with you on this, Donna. I've been trusted with the safety and health of this team, and that includes you. And just like you, I'm anxious to learn what the exploration holds for the rest of us, but I can't do my job if we don't communicate. Chang shrugged dismissively, then allowed a narrow smile. You say I'm able to do things I was unable to before. You're only half right. She stood and slipped her hands into her lab coat. My experience in the green stream was an awakening. A beautiful, illuminating rebirth, away from our world, away from the gray plastic and particle board. When I was connected to the mainframe, I had access to the machine, and it had access to me. It sounds absurd, but it sounds frightening. Meryl's black irises widened. I'm not frightened, Donna spoke unconvincingly. Confused, maybe, but it's like there was something trapped hidden, locked away inside me, and the mainframe was the key. Those books of my father's, she gestured to the red-covered journals strewn about the conference table. They were the codex. But why? Why you, Donna? The engineer nodded slowly. Of course I've asked myself this same question. The only conclusion is that my father had a hand in building the laboratory on Liberty Island. He understood its architecture and why it was compatible with the machines, the transference modules here, the pseudoskins there. Ganaya stepped back, afraid. Wait, are you saying your father engineered all of this? Chang nodded. Yes, at least in part, and he ensured I would be the one to make sense of it. How? Miral asked. Chang said nothing. Her silence suggested her father, Chang Wak-Yi, genetically engineered his own daughter, implanted something inside her mind and body, programmed the programmer. The thought disgusted the physician. Gania's gaze moved from the machines to Donna. If that's the case, then… the council must know. On some level. They must suspect. Chang waved a hand between them. Perhaps the council selected me because, like you… I was the obvious choice to serve as Engineer, but the Central Processor most certainly knows, more than the Council anyway. The computer knows our gifts, our talents, our prejudices, whether innate or otherwise." Meryl stepped back. "'You say that as if the Central Processor were a god?' Chang shook her head. "'No, not a god. Something worse. Something flawed. A fallible intelligence. Haven't you ever wondered who programmed the machine that rules all our lives? And, if the central processor, a once-sophisticated computer, was programmed by the best technologists over 60 years ago, it would require hardware engineers, software programmers to perform maintenance. Upgrades, Meryl finished for her colleague. Yes, innovations. So you see, Donna said, holding two fingers to her temple, I'm not especially keen on neurologists and hack therapists poking around in here." Before Muriel could reply, a bulb over her workstation lit up. She went to the desk and pressed a square button on the seamless pager she carried with her. A loudspeaker in the lab crackled to life. Paging Chief Surgeon Gania, Dr. Muriel Gania, you are required in the hospital. Ganaya pressed another button on the handheld device. This is Dr. Gania. What is it? Chief Surgeon Ganaya, your patient, Wyndham Melinda, is waking. Meryl glanced over at Chang. Mindy. Go, the engineer said, without looking at the position. You have my word. I won't do anything without... permission. General Benjamin Castro said his goodbyes to Lieutenant John Running Bear and Professor Iku Kaminari two blocks from City Hall. He knew the men almost a day, but felt like he knew them much longer. Running Baron Kaminari took on the General's burden, helped him fight his way across the Brooklyn Bridge. They were now heading west. Castro's quest led him deeper into Manhattan, seeking Major McGilliguddy, Dr. Bath, and any allies that could rally to their cause, freeing survivors from their oppressors and finding a way for those in the Phoenix Project to return to the surface. The General walked quickly through streets damp with rain, rust, and rot. He held the data disk Kamenari had given him. Recorded on the disk was a message the Japanese survivor made for his missing wife and daughter. Kamenari believed his family fled to the west. With Running Bear's help, he hoped to find them. In return for a weapon, information, and risking their lives to help him, Benjamin promised to take the disk to the last known radio station operating on the east coast, he would broadcast Kaminari's message to his family, along with his own plea to anyone still listening. The potent blend of distance and longing in Iku's eyes reminded Castro of his own family, his estranged wife, now probably long dead. His daughter, Rachel, might be alive, if she survived whatever fate befell Tel Aviv. They had their differences, of course, most notably her orthodoxy and disgust of her father's adultery. She put her faith in God Benjamin put his faith in Israel's Western allies. If they ever saw each other again, was there hope for reconciliation, or was the gulf between them as toxic as that which brought an end to the world they knew? Castro crossed Chambers Street. He came upon City Hall, a place he had visited twice before he was placed in cryostasis, once as a tourist, second as Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. Cracked asphalt and sidewalks strewn with rubble led to overgrown trees and shrubs spotting the area. Hastily erected and recently reinforced chain-link and razor-wire fencing lined the building's perimeter. Once the seat of New York City government, located at the center of City Hall Park in Lower Manhattan, City Hall now resembled a penitentiary, a concentration camp more than an epicenter of public service. The oldest city hall in the United States Up until its evacuation after the events of 2069, the building housed the office of the mayor and the chambers of the New York City Council. The general sensed movement on the other side of the fence, behind trimmed trees and invasive shrubs. Moving quickly, Castro kept his head down. He filled his hand with a Beretta. "'Who's there?' His enhanced hearing picked up the sounds of at least two sets of footfalls, maybe more. "'I'm not here to cause trouble.' I'm looking for my friends. A deep, feminine voice replied, Throw down your weapon and we'll talk. All right. Castro engaged the safety on the automatic. Reluctantly, he leaned down, placing the gun at his feet. The general watched bushes spread slowly, peeling back like a curtain. Two figures stepped forward. A tall, muscular, dark-skinned woman, her head shaved bald. The other was an unimpressive man of medium build, not more than twenty or so. Both carried rifles. The woman wore weathered camouflage pants and a brown, blood-stained tank top. An oversized hockey jersey hung loosely over the young man's shoulders, stretching over his ripped blue jeans. "'Stay where you are,' the woman commanded. "'You ain't a mutant?' the young man added. "'It was a question, not a statement. "'No.' I assure you. Not a rockhead, the woman said, gazing up and down Castro's body, inspecting him. Sure as hell not a Morlock. What do you want? What are you snooping around for? When she turned, Castro noticed a mark above her right ear. Her partner wore a similar emblem of a shield on his left bicep. Oddfellows Local 151. The woman's eyes never wandered. Castro shrugged. Confused, not dismissive. You know our work? Benjamin shook his head. Then you ain't from here, the young man scoffed, as if to insult the general. You said you were looking for your friends, the woman stated, her chin pointed outward. What friends? Who are they? Why are you looking here? She gestured at City Hall behind her. We're explorers. We got separated south of here, picked a landmark. Castro looked up, peering through the razor wire and trees at the building. Are they here? Before the woman could respond, the man replied, Not here. Benjamin looked down at the Beretta on the ground. The woman followed his gaze. Don't do anything stupid. Don't worry, I've had enough of that for today. Who's in charge here? They're out on patrol, the man replied. Shut up, Squeak, the stone-faced woman turned. There was something about the tattoo Castro recognized. What is this odd fellow's Local 151? You're a union of some kind? We're the union, the woman said. We patrol everything from just north of Hell's Kitchen to Lower Manhattan. Help out where we can, breaking up fights, cleaning streets, putting out fires. Castro felt a little more at ease. A noble undertaking. You must know the area well, its history. The woman lowered her weapon. She gestured for Squeak to do so as well. The Freemasons are the keepers of the history, the woman said. We aren't affiliated with them anymore. The General's thoughts fled to his conversation with Esther, the elderly woman from Brooklyn, who spoke about religious and other organizations helping out after the destruction of the city. The General asked her about his former attaché and friend, Arthur Roth. Do you know a man named Roth? Benjamin asked Arthur Roth, "I'm told he allied himself with the Masons, but then disappeared." The two on the other side of the fence exchanged a look of recognition. "You know him, then?" Castro said. In the distance, he heard vehicles converging on the area around City Hall. "Everyone knows Arthur Roth," the woman said. Octavia squeak tapped her forearm. "They're back." Octavia looked Benjamin over again as if to determine to what extent he threatened them. "'You're free to go. Or you can come with us. Maybe we can help you find your friends.' "'I'd appreciate that,' Benjamin bent to reach for his gun. "'Leave the weapon there.' Octavia waved her rifle along the fence line, gesturing for the general to follow her. "'Squeak'll come around and get it.' Castro followed the muscular woman on the other side of the fence. They walked to the southern entrance of the building, or Castro saw the incoming motorcade. All-terrain vehicles and two- and three-wheeled cycles flanked the long column of trucks. The largest vehicle, a cannibalized fire truck with armor plating and spears jutting out from its sides, stopped at the front of the building. Men and women in combat fatigues and faded road wear jumped from the sides and back of the truck. A half block away, Major McGillicuddy and Dr. Bath walked behind the odd fellows' vehicles. They stood about an arm's length apart, with odd fellows on each side. A trio of slow-moving cycles urged them on, closer to the fire forming at the front of City Hall. For a moment, Castro felt a sense of relief. Octavia came around the fence to where Castro stood, waving at Cuddy and John. He couldn't determine if they were prisoners, but from his position, they seemed to be all right. Your friends? Octavia lowered her rifle. Castro nodded. Come on, then. She walked in front of him, down to a sand-filled barricade. There, a middle-aged man in black and blue military garb stood, hand on hips, giving instructions to the men disembarking from the modified trucks and cycles. He was of average height, not taller than Benjamin, but physically more impressive, carrying little weight other than the muscle and sinew that came with hard work. Hoffa, Octavia addressed the man. He turned to face them. His red hair, a darker, more crimson than Bath's, had receded to the top of his head, where a few loose strands stuck straight up. The rest of his hair grew long behind his head, poorly tied into a dirty ponytail. Who's this? Hoffa glanced over at General Castro. Green eyes sank into deep, dark sockets in his ruddy face. Says he got separated from his friends. Octavia pointed at Cuddy and Bath, who walked closer. Those men over there. Hoffa turned. They're with you, huh? Found him on the dark side of what's left of Trump Tower. Was that where the drone went down? Octavia asked, a concerned look etched into her face. Yeah, Hoffa said. Chasing a spinner. It's a total mess down there. Wreckage. Bodies everywhere. Rockheads killing scavengers. Fighting it out with their own. There was nothing we could do. We'll have to wait till this one burns to the ground and see who and what we can salvage. Castro appreciated how the man spoke coolly in direct, short fragments. You're in charge here? Castro aimed a thumb over his shoulder at City Hall, where Hoffa's crew carried wood, metal, and plastic containers from their vehicles into the building. In charge? Hoffa grinned, scoffing at the suggestion. As much as anyone, I reckon. They call me Hoffa, Oddfellows Local 151. Castro shook his head. He hoped Hoffa wouldn't detect the simulacrum's lack of body heat. He was armed, Octavia noted. Castro and Hoffa followed her gaze to where Squeak sprinted towards them. Well, Hoffa shrugged, it's not unusual. Before Benjamin could respond, he saw Cuddy in his peripheral vision inching forward. General, Cuddy called out. Castro shook his head instinctively. Hoffa and Octavia appeared taken aback. General, she asked military, Hoffa said, looking at Cuddy and Bath, then back at Castro. The general nodded. After a fashion? Is that a problem? The red-headed man waved at Cuddy and Bath, inviting them to come closer. He pursed his lips tightly, then said, not a problem at all. Just don't see much of that anymore. Major McGillicuddy and Dr. Bath joined them. General Castro saw the major was armed. Something seemed different, about the two since he last saw them. Their robot bodies appeared more authentic, like their subterranean counterparts. He was asking about Arthur Roth, Octavia said, a seriousness coming over her that wasn't there when speaking to Castro earlier. Hava stepped back. Would you say your name was? Benjamin. Castro spoke the anglicized version of his Hebrew name. All right, General Benjamin, Haffa grinned and pulled his sweat-soaked hair tight into a knot on his head. He placed one hand on Castro's shoulder, the other on Octavia's. Better give him back their weapons. "'You sure that's a good idea, boss?' Squeak brandished Castro's beretta between them. Hoffa locked eyes with the unflinching gaze of Cuddy. Then, the passive, concerned glance of Bath. He shrugged. "'You're not going to kill us, are you?' "'No,' Castro was emphatic. "'Fine.' Hoffa walked between the group, leading the way. Better come with us then. With its wide open rotunda and fluted columns supporting the coffered dome, the once beautiful building was unlike anything in the Phoenix project. Allowed to move freely, Dr. Bath roamed the expansive hall, converted by the odd fellows into a storage area. Like-shaped boxes stacked eight feet or higher formed long columns, corridors of supplies. Bath took inventory of canned foods, medicine, machine parts, ammunition, and children's toys. A few odd fellows watched Bath, but most ignored him, going about their routine of restocking the boxes with items scavenged from the city. Nearby, Castro, Cuddy, Hoffa, and Octavia gathered in an open lounge area. Benjamin sat opposite Hoffa. Cuddy hovered over the general's shoulder, keeping a watchful eye on those coming and going from the room. Can I get you and your men something? Hava asked Castro food water? No, thank you. The red-headed man turned to Octavia. You mind ice water, maybe some of that dog jerky. Octavia nodded as she walked away. She faced Cuddy, her eyes seemed to hold him for a moment. A fleeting feeling passed between them. something Cuddy hadn't felt in some time. Was it physical attraction? He wondered, and if so. How is that possible? His consciousness was transported through the green stream, captured in the artificial body of the inhuman simulacrum. A machine couldn't possibly have the same biological sensations as living flesh. Cuddy shrugged off the thought and turned his attention back to their surroundings. He counted entrances and exits, men with weapons, women operating generator-powered sewing machines. "'I hope you don't mind my asking,' Kasher said to Hoffa. "'But what is all of this?' The leader of the Oddfellows grinned. This? He opened his arms out wide, turned a little. This is the future. Or what's left of it. Castro continued. I understand you and your crew, the Oddfellows, you patrol the city. This is what you've scrounged? For what purpose? That's right, Hoppe said. All remaining unions and first responders in Manhattan merge into one. We do what we can. Help out where we can. For twenty years we've been scrambling in and out of buildings, taking abandoned goods, stockpiling, redistributing to those in need. The problem is, General, we're at war. But we're not soldiers. Not most of us, anyway. War, Cuddy interjected. What war? Hoffa glanced up. Survival of the fittest. Battle between the mutants and survivors. Silvio Jones and the Rockheads on one side, Morlocks on the other. Humans are caught in between. "'Yeah, we've heard of Jones,' Cuddy said. "'We've had run-ins with the Rockheads.' Hoffa looked back at Castro. "'Your men called you General. Were you in the war?' "'Yes,' Castro lied, recounting what John Running Bear told him. "'In the South.' "'Well, you must be good at what you do, General. Held your own with the Rockheads. Come out all right.' He waved at the three explorers. "'We could use men like you.' Castro recalled his experiences in combat, He had seen so much brutality, incidents blended together with whole campaigns. Now, he wondered what it was all worth. "'I noticed your vehicles,' Castro pointed at the entrance to City Hall. "'You've got a deuce and a half, an armored CAV plating welded to the sides of your trucks. If you're fighting man-to-man, what do you need all that for?' Hoffa grinned broadly, showing gaps between surprisingly clean teeth. "'I said we weren't soldiers, General.' didn't say we were dumbasses. Castro searched his memory, trying to recall what National Guard or other military bases were in the area, places the odd fellows could obtain military-grade weapons and ordnance. You say you're at war with these mutants. Why? What's at stake? Hoffa leaned forward. Aren't you listening? Don't you get it? After the fall of New York, there was a mutant surge, Cuddy interrupted. Where'd they come from? Haffa shrugged as if irritated or confused. We don't know, and we don't care. They all have one thing in common. They got no use for humans. Octavia returned to the circle with a tall plastic cup. Except for human flesh, she said, handing the water to Haffa. They eat people? Cuddy asked, dark eyes narrowing. Slash them, Octavia said. Torture them. Eat them. Whatever. Animals, Haffa sipped the water. They don't know any better. It's like they derive some sort of power from harming others, Octavia added, and makes them stronger. Benjamin recalled the rockheads they encountered outside the Statue of Liberty, the deformed mutants and helpless captives on Nut Island. He hadn't had the opportunity to tell Cuddy and Bath about his confrontation with Santa Muerte. The general stood. I've encountered some of these mutants. They aren't all the same. And yes, some seem to be inherently violent. Others have powers which give them an edge. It's important to understand where they came from, how they came to be, and what they want. Octavia stared back at the general. Silvio Jones wants to control everything, and everyone. Hoffa reached into the cup of water. He extracted a handful of large ice cubes, and held them to the back of his neck. That's why you came back here? (laughs) My luck. I need warriors, and I get explorers. Castro turned. He saw Dr. Bath behind Cuddy speaking to a group of odd fellows. He looked back at Hoffa. We didn't come to fight. No, of course not. Hoffa rose from where he sat. In that case, General, all I can offer you and your men is shelter. Getting ready for an evening patrol. He stood shoulder to shoulder with Octavia. Find a safe spot in the building. Morning comes, I want you out of here. I got no time for cowards. Cuddy lurched forward, but Castro put up an arm, the back of his hand to the major's chest. That's fine, Hoffa. We understand your position. The general faced Cuddy, come on, Castro and Cuddy collected bath as they walked from the rotunda to a marble stairway. The general felt the stares of the odd fellows. The trio was reunited, but Benjamin felt strangely alone, disconcerted by the state of the world and his inability to rally allies through diplomacy. Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Lauren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner, written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner and Willem DeGrieff, narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. John Running Bear is based on a character created by Fire Pit Creative Group's close friend, Sam Ashu. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at firepitcreativegroupofficial, Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Firepit Creative Group, and on YouTube at firepitcreativegroup. Creative Group. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Firepit Creative Group.